Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fotations Life to Tape podcast. We're recording the reading of the Junior Classics Volume 1, Fairy and Wonder Tales. This is a podcasting 2.0 app, which means if you found it in your podcast app, you are listening to an app that is podcasting 2.0 compatible. I only uploaded it to Podcast Index, and uh, I didn't upload it to the feed to iTunes or Spotify. So if you're finding it there, uh, that's not the original feed. Um, but with Podcasting 2.0, it's open directory where er anyone can submit uh, their RSS feed and applications can access that. It's like a full, complete library of all podcasts everywhere. And it's not regulated by corporations like Apple or Spotify, who may decide to take some things down in one country but leave it up in another country, which is something that very much happens I remember I was in Turkey and I bought an album, Dead Mouth 5 album, and they straight up, even though I paid for the album, it would let me download maybe four of the nine songs. And uh, because I was in Turkey, um, even though my account is a U.S. account, uh, they blocked me from even looking at the at the songs and couldn't download them. So then I was like, uh if I would have known that they were going to do that, I wouldn't have bought the album while I was traveling. And so that's just an example of a way that, you know, corporations, they have to censor things uh, in the countries where they want to, you know, do business in because they want to remain in good standing, even if that's not in good standing uh, with the public. And so by submitting the podcast, a podcasting uh, 2.0, the podcasting 2.0 platform, it ensures that you know everyone can get a hold of this podcast. Uh, it is we are going to be doing a lot of readings of older books and and stuff. So there is some uh, material that you know might not be uh, you know politically correct, but I do think it's important that you know we have an archive of these books in an audio form, so it's more accessible to everyone. And you know they are his historical pieces of work, even if they're fiction as well as the non-fiction content and uh, we need to know where we came from and in order to know you know where we're going so let's get started the tinder box by hans christian anderson there came a soldier marching along the high road one two one two he had his napkin sack on his back and a saber by his side for he had been in the wars, and now he wanted to go home. And on the way he met with an old witch. She was very hideous, with her underlip hung down upon her breast, said, Good evening, soldier. What a fine sword you have, and what a big knapsack. You're a proper soldier. Now you have as much money as you like. Thank you, old witch, said the soldier. Do you see that great tree? Quote the witch, and she pointed to a tree which stood beside them, it's quite hollow inside. You must climb to the top, and then you will see a hole, through which you can let yourself down and get deep into the tree. I'll tie a rope around your body so that I can pull you up again when you call me. 
What am I to do in the tree? asked the soldier. Get money, replied the witch. Listen to me. When you come down to earth under the tree, you will find yourself in a great hall. It is quite light, for above three hundred lamps are burning there. Then you will see three doors. These you can open, for the keys are hanging there. If you go into the first chamber, you will see a great chest in the middle of the floor. On this chest sits a dog, and he's got a pair of eyes as big as two teacups. But you need not care for that. I'll give you my blue check checkered apron, and you can spread it out upon the floor. Then go quickly and take the dog and set him upon my apron. Then open the chest and take as many shillings as you'd like, for they are of copper. If you prefer silver, you must go into the second chamber. But there sits a dog with a pair of eyes as big as mill wheels. But do not care for that. Set upon him my apron and take some of the money, and you will want gold. You will have that too, in fact, as much as you can carry if you go into the third chamber. But the dog that sits on the money chest there has two eyes as big as round towers. He is a fierce dog, you may be sure, but you needn't be afraid of for all that. Only set upon my apron, and he won't hurt you, and take out of the chest as much gold as you like. That's not so bad, said the soldier, but what am I to give you, old witch? For you will not do it for nothing, I fancy. No, replied the witch, not a single shilling will I have. You shall only bring me an old tinder box, which my grandmother forgot when she was down there last. Then tie the rope around my body, cried the soldier. Here it is, said the witch, and here's my blue checkered apron. Then the soldier climbed up into the tree, let himself slip down into the hole, and stood, as the witch had said, in the great hall where the tree, where the three hundred lamps were burning. Now he opened the first door. Ugh! There sat the dog, with eyes as big as teacups, staring at him. "'You're a fine fellow,' exclaimed the soldier, and he sat. He set him on the witch's apron and took as many shillings as his pocket would hold, and then locked the chest and set the dog on it again, and went into the second chamber. "'Ah!' There sat the dog, with eyes as big as mill wheels. "'You should not stare so hard at me,' said the soldier. "'You might strain your eyes.' And he set the dog apron dog upon the witch's apron and when he saw the silver money in the chest he threw away all the copper money he had filled his pockets and his knapsack with silver only then he went into the third chamber oh but that was horrid the dog there really had eyes as big as towers and they turned round and round in his head like wheels good evening said the soldier and he touched his cap for he had never seen such a dog as that before when he had looked at him a little more closely, he thought, That will do, and lifted him down to the floor and opened the chest. Mercy, what a quantity of gold was there! He could buy with it the whole town, and the sugar-suckling pigs of the cake women, and all the tin soldiers' whips and riding horses in the whole world. Yes, that was a quantity of money. Now the soldier threw all, away all the silver coin with which he had filled his pockets and his knapsack, and took gold instead. Yes, all his pockets, his knapsack, his boots, and his cap were filled, so that he could scarcely walk. Now indeed he had plenty of money. He put the dog on the chest and shut the door, and then called up through the tree, Now pull me up, you old witch. Have you the tinder box? asked the witch. Plague on it, exclaimed the soldier. I had clean forgotten about it, and he went and brought it. The witch threw him up, 
drew him up, and he stood on the high road again, with pockets, boots, knapsack, and a cap full of gold. What are you going to do with the tinderbox? asked the soldier. That's nothing to you, retorted the witch. You have your money. Just give me the tinderbox. Nonsense, said the soldier. Tell me directly what you're going to do with it, or I'll draw my sword and cut your head off. No, cried the witch. So the soldier cut her head off. Cut off her head. There she lay, but tied up all his money in her apron and took it on his back like a bundle, put the tinderbox in his pocket, and went straight off toward the town. That was the splendid town. That was a splendid town, and he put up at the very best inn, and asked for the finest rooms, and ordered his favorite dishes, for now he was rich, as he had so much money. The servants who had to clean his boots certainly thought them a remarkable old pair for such a rich gentleman, but he had not brought on any new ones, but he had not brought any new ones yet. The next day he procured proper boots and handsome clothes. Now the soldier had come a fine gentleman, and the people told him of all the splendid things which there, which were in their city, and about the king and what a pretty princess the king's daughter was. Where can one go? Where can one get to see her? asked the soldier. She is not to be seen at all, said they altogether. She lives in a great copper castle with a great many walls and towers around it. No one but the king may go in and out there, for it has been prophesied that she may marry a common soldier, and the king can't bear that. I should like to see her, thought the soldier, but he could not leave to do so. Now he lived merrily and went to theater, drove in the king's garden, and gave much money to the poor, and this was very kind of him, for he knew the old times how hard it had been when one was not a shell when one has not a shilling. Now he was rich, had new clothes, and gained many friends. All said he was a rare one, a true cavalier, and that pleased the soldier well, but as he spent money every day he never carried any. He never carried any. He had at least two shillings left, and he was obliged to turn out the five rooms in which he had dwelt, and had to live in a little garden garment under the roof, and clean his boots for himself, and mend them with a daring needle. None of his friends came to see him, for there were too many stairs to climb. It was quite dark one evening, and he could not even buy himself a candle, when it occurred to him that there was a candle at the end of the tinderbox, which had been taken out of the hollow tree in which the witch had helped him. He brought out the tinderbox and the candled end, but as soon as he struck fire, the sparks rose from the flint, the door flew open, and the dog who had eyes as big as a couple of teacups and who he had seen on the tree stood before him and said, What is my lord's command? What is this? said the soldier. That is a famous tinderbox. If I can get everything with it that I want, bring me some money, said he to the dog, and whisk, the dog was gone, and whisk, he was back again, with a great bag full of shillings in his mouth. Now the soldier knew that a capital tinderbox this was. If it struck it once, the dog came who sat upon the chest of copper money. If he struck it twice, the dog who had the silver, and if he struck it three times, then appeared the dog who had the gold. Now the soldier moved back into the fine rooms and appeared again in handsome clothes, and all his friends knew him again and cared very much for him indeed. 
Once he thought to himself, it is very strange these things. One cannot get to see the princess. They all say she is very beautiful, but is what use of that if she has always to sit in the great copper castle with the many towers? Can I not get to see her at all? Where is my tinder box? And so he struck a light and whisk came the dog with eyes as big as teacups. It is midnight, certainly, said the soldier, but I should very much like to see the princess, only for a little moment. And the dog was outside the door directly, and before the soldier thought of it, came back with the princess. She sat upon the dog's back and slept, and everyone could see she was a real princess, for she was so lovely. The soldier could not refrain from kissing her, for he was for he was a thorough soldier. Then the dog ran back again with the princess, but when morning came and the king and queen were drinking tea, the princess said she had a strange dream the night before about a dog and a soldier that she had written upon the dog, and the soldier had kissed her. That would be a fine history, said the queen. So one of the old court ladies had to watch the next night by the princess's bed to see if it was really a dream or what it might be. The soldier had a great longing to see the lovely princess again, so the dog came in the night, took her away, and ran as fast as he could, but the old lady put on water boots and ran just as fast after him. When she saw that they both entered the great house, she thought, Now I know where it is, and with a bit of a chalk she drew a great cross on the door. Then she went home and lay down, and the dog came up with the princess, but when he saw there was a cross drawn on the door where the soldier lived, he took a piece of chalk too, and drew crosses on all the doors in the town. And that was cleverly done, for now the lady could not find the right door, because all the doors had crosses upon them. In the, morn early, in the morning early came the king and queen, and told and the old court lady and all the officers to see where it was the princess had been. Here it is, said the king, when he drew the first door with a cross upon it. No, my dear husband, it's there, said the queen, who described another door which also showed a cross. But there is one, there is one, said all, for everywhere they looked there were crosses on the door, so they saw that it would avail them nothing if they searched on. But the queen was exceedingly clever, was an exceedingly clever woman, who could do more than ride in a coach. She took her great gold scissors and cut a piece of silk into pieces and made a neat little bag. This bag she filled with a fine wheat flour and tied it on the princess's back. And when that was done, she cut a little hole in the bag so that the flour would be scattered along all the way which the princess should take. In the night, the dog came again, took the princess on his back, and ran with her to the soldier, who loved her very much and would gladly have been a prince, so that he might have her for his wife. The dog did not notice at all how the flower ran in a stream from the castle to the window of the soldier's house, where he ran up the wall with the princess. In the morning the king and queen saw well enough where the daughter had been, and they took the soldier and put him in prison. There he sat, oh, but it was dark and disagreeable there, and they said to him, Tomorrow you shall be hanged. That was not amusing to hear, and he had left his tinderbox at the inn. In the morning he could, would see 
There, the iron grating of the little window, how the people were hurrying out of town to see him hanged. He heard the drums beat and saw the soldiers marching. All the people were running out, and among them was the shoemaker's boy, with leather apron and slippers, and he galloped so fast that one of his slippers flew off and came right against the wall where the soldier sat looking through the iron grating. Hello, you shoemaker's boy. You needn't be in such a hurry, cried the soldier to him. It will not begin till I come, but if you would run to where I live and bring me my tinderbox, you shall have four shillings, but you must put your best leg foremost. The shoemaker boy wanted to get the four shillings, so he went and brought the tinderbox, and, well, we shall hear now what had happened. Outside the town a great gallows had been built, and round it stood the soldiers and a many hundred thousand people. The king and queen sat on a splendid throne, opposite to the judges and the whole council. The soldier already stood upon the ladder, but as they were about to put the rope around his neck, he said that before a poor criminal suffered his punishment, an innocent request was always granted to him. He wanted very much to smoke a pipe of tobacco, and it would be the last pipe he should smoke in the world. The king said the king would not say no to this, so the soldier took out his tinderbox and struck fire. One, two, three, and there suddenly stood all the dogs with one eye as big as teacups, one eye as big, large as mill wheels, and the one whose eyes were big and round as towers. Help me now, so that I may not be hanged, says the soldier. And the dogs fell upon the judges, and all the council seized one by the leg and another by the nose, and tossed them many feet into the air, so they fell down and were all broken into pieces. I won't, cried the king, but the biggest dog took him and the king, and threw them after the others. Then the soldiers were afraid, and the people cried, Little soldier, you shall be our king, and marry the beautiful princess. So they put the soldier into the king's coach, and all three dogs darted on for in front and cried hurrah. And the boys whistled through their fingers, and the soldiers presented arms. The princess came out of the copper castle and became queen, and she liked that well enough. The wedding lasted a week, and the three dogs sat at the table too, and opened their eyes wider than ever as they saw, at all they saw. The Constant Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen There was a there was once a five and twenty tin soldiers. They were all brothers, for they had all been born of one old tin spoon. They soldiered their muskets and looked straight for straight before them. Their uniform was red and blue and very splendid. The first thing that they had heard in the world when the lid was taken off the box had been the words tin soldiers. These words were tittered by a little boy clapping his hand, and the soldiers had been given to him, for it was his birthday, and now he put them upon the table. Each soldier was exactly like the rest, but one of them had been cast last of all, and there had not been enough tin to finish him. But he stood as firmly on his one leg as the other, as the others on their two, and it was just this soldier who became remarkable. On the table which they had been placed stood many other playthings, but the toy that attracted most attention was the neat castle of the cardboard. 
Through the little windows, one could see straight into the hall. Before the castle, some little trees were placed round a little looking-glass, which was to present a clear lake. Waxen swan, swan, waxing swans swan on the lake, and were mirrored in it. It was very, it was all very pretty, but the prettiest of all was a little lady who stood at the open door of the castle. She was also cut out in paper, but she had a dress of the clearest gauze, and the little narrow blue ribbon over her shoulders that looked like a scarf, and in the middle of the ribbon was the shining tinsel rose, as big as her whole face. The little lady stretched out both her arms, for she was a dancer, and then she lifted one leg so high that the tin soldier could not see it at all, and thought that like her like himself, she had one leg. That would be the wife for me, thought he, but she is very grand. She lives in a castle, and I only have and I only have a box, and there are five and twenty of us in that. It is no place for her, but I must try to make acquaintance with her. And then he lay down at full length behind a snuff-box which was on the table. There he could easily watch the little dainty lady, who continued to stand on one leg without losing her balance. When the evening came, all the other tin soldiers were put into their box, and the people in the house went to bed. Now the, bo now the toys began to play at visiting and at war, and at giving balls. The tin soldier rattled in their box, for they wanted to join, but could not lift the lid. The nutcracker threw somersaults, and the pencils amused itself on the table. There was so much noise that the canary woke up and began to speak too, and even in verse. The only two who did not stir from their place were the tin soldier and the dancing lady. She stood straight up on point of one of her toes and stretched out both her arms, and he was just as enduring on his one leg, and he never turned his eyes away from her. Now the clock struck twelve and bounced. The lid flew off the snuff-box, but there was not snuff in it, but a little black goblin, you see. It was a trick. Tin soldier, said the goblin, don't stare at things that don't concern you. But the tin soldier pretended not to hear him. Just you wait till tomorrow, said the goblin. But when the morning came, the children got up, and the tin soldier was placed in the window. And whenever it was the goblin or the draft that did it, all at once the window flew open, and the soldier fell head over heels out in out of the third story. And that was a terrible passage. He put his leg straight up and struck with it the helmet downward and his bayonet between the paving stones. The servant's maid and little boy came down directly to look for him, but though they almost trod upon him, they could not see him. If the soldier had cried out, Here I am, they would have found him, but he did not think it fitting to call out loudly because he was in uniform. Now it began to rain. The drops soon fell thick soon fell thicker, and at last it came down to a complete stream. When the rain was passed, two street boys came by. Just look, said one of them, there lies a tin soldier. You must come out and ride in the boat. And they made a boat out of newspaper and put the tin soldier in the middle of it. And so he sailed down the gutter, and the two boys ran beside him, clapping their hands. Goodness preserves us. How the waves rose in that gutter, 
and how fast the stream ran. But it had been a heavy rain, the paper boat rocked up and down, and sometimes turned around so rapidly that the tin soldier trembled. But he remained firm and never changed countenance, and looked straight before him and shouldered his musket. All at once the boat went into a long drain, and it became as dark as it had been in his box. Where am I going now, he thought. Yes, yes, that goblin's fault. Ah, if the little lady only sat here with me in the boat, it might be twice as dark for what I should care. Suddenly there came a great water rat which lived under the drain. Have you a passport, said the rat. Give me your passport. But the tin soldier kept silent and only held his musket tighter than ever. The boat went on, but the rat came after it. Ho! Oh, how he gnashed his teeth and called out to the bit of straw and wood. Hold him, hold him. He hasn't paid toll. He hasn't shown his passport. But the stream became stronger and stronger. The tin soldier could see the bright daylight where the arch ended, but he heard a roaring noise which might well frighten a bolder man. Only think just where the tunnel ended, the drain ran into a great canal, and for him that would have been a dangerous as for us to be carried down a great waterfall. Now he was already so near it that he could not stop. The boat was carried out. The poor tin soldier stiffened himself as he could, and no one could say that he moved an eyelid. The boat whirled around three or four times and was full of water to the very edge. It must think, sink. The tin soldier stood up to his neck in water, and the boat sank deeper and deeper, and the paper was loosened more and more, and now the water closed over the soldier's head. Then he thought of the pretty little dancer, and how he should never see her again, and it sounded in the soldier's ear, Farewell, farewell, thou warrior brave, die shall this day. And now the paper parted, and the tin soldier fell out, but at that moment he was snapped up by a great fish. Oh, how dark it is that it is the fish's body. It was darker yet than in the drain tunnel, and it was very narrow, too. But the tin soldier remained unmoved, and lay at full length, shouldering his musket. The fish swam to and through. He made the most wonderful movements, and then became quite still. At last something flashed through him, like a lightning. The daylight shone quite clear, and a voice said aloud, The tin soldier, the fish had been caught, carried to market, bought and taken into the kitchen, where the cook cut him open with a large knife. She seized the soldier around the body, and with both her hands carried him into the room, where all were anxious to see the remarkable man who had traveled about in the inside of a fish. But the tin soldier was not at all proud. They placed him on the table, and there, no, a curious thing may have happened in the world. The tin soldier was in the very room in which he had been before. He saw the same children, the same toys stood upon the table, and there was the pretty castle with a grateful little dancer, a graceful little dancer. She was still balancing herself on one leg and held the other extended in the air. She was faithful, too, that moved the tin soldier. He was very near weeping in tin tears, but that would not have been proper. He looked at her, but they said nothing to each other. Then one of the little boys took the tin soldier and flung him into the stove. He gave no reason for doing this. It must have been the fault of the goblin in the snuff-box. 
The tin soldier stood there quite illuminated and felt as he and felt a heat that was terrible, but whether his heat proceeded from the real fire or from love he did not know. The colors had quite gone off from him, but whether he had happened on the journey or had been caused by grief, no one could say. He looked at the little lady, she looked at him, and he felt that he was melting, but he stood firm, shouldering his musket. Then suddenly the door flew open, and a draught of air caught the dancer, and she flew like a scythe just into the stove to the tin soldier, and flashed up in a flame, and there was gone. Then the tin soldier melted down into a slump, and when the servant maid took the ashes out the next day, she found him in the shape of a little tin heart, but of the dancer nothing remained but the tinsel rose, and that was burned as black as coal. The Fir Tree by Hans Christian Andersen Out in the woods stood a little stood a nice little fir tree. The place had the place he had was a very good one. The sun shone on him as to fresh air. There was enough of that. Around him grew a large-sized comrades, pines as well as firs, but the little firs wanted so very much to be grown-up trees. He did not think of the warm sun and of the fresh air. He did not care for the little cottage children that ran about and prattled when they were in the wood looking for wild strawberries. The children often came with a whole pitcher full of berries or a long row of them threaded on a straw and sat down near the young tree and said, Oh, how pretty he is. What a nice little fir. But this was what the tree could not bear to hear. At the end of the year, he had shot up a good deal, and after another year, he was another long bit taller. For the fir trees, one can always tell by the shoots how many years old they are. Oh, were I but such a high tree as the others are, sighed he. Then I should be able to spread out my branches and with the tops to look into the wide world. Then he would then the, would the birds build nests among my branches, and when there was a breeze I could bend with as much statelessness as the others. Neither the sunbeams nor the birds nor the red clouds which morning the evening sailed above him gave the little tree any pleasure. In winter when the snow lay glittering on the ground, a hare would often jump, leaping along, and jump right over the little tree. Oh, that made him so angry. But two winters were past, and the third, the tree was so large that the hare was obliged to go around it, to grow and grow, to get older and be tall, thought the tree. That, after all, is the most delightful thing in the world. In autumn, the woodcutters always came and felled some of the largest trees. This happened every year, and the young fir tree that had now grown to a very comely size trembled at the sight, for the magnificent trees fell to the earth with noise and cracking. The branches were lopped off, and the trees looked long and bare, and they hardly were hardly to be recognized. And then they were laid in carts, and the horses dragged them out of the wood. Where did they go? What became of them? In spring, when the swallows and the storks came, the trees asked them, Don't you know where they have been taken? Have you not met them anywhere? 
The swallows did not know anything about it, but the storks looked musing, nodded his head, and said, Yes, I think I know. I met many ships as I was flying hither from Egypt, and on the ships were magnificent masts, and I venture to assert that it was they who smelled so of fur. I may also congratulate you, for they lifted themselves on high most majestically. Oh, were I but old enough to fly across the sea, but how does the sea look in reality? What is it like? That would take a long time to explain, said the stork, and with these words off he went. Rejoice in thy growth, said the sunbeams, rejoice in thy vigorous growth, and in the fresh life that grows within thee. And the wind kissed the tree, and the dew wept tears over him, but the fir understood it not. When Christmas came, quite young trees were cut down, trees which often were not even as large or as the same age as the fir tree, who could never rest, but always wanted to be off. These young trees, and they were always the finest looking, retained their branches, they were laid on carts, and the horses drew them out of the wood. Where are they going? asked the fir. They are not taller than I. They are not taller than I. There was one indeed that was considerably shorter, and why do they all retain their branches? Whither, whither are they taken? We know, we know, chirped the sparrows. We have peeped in at the windows in the town below. We know whither they are taken. The greatest splendor and all the greatest magnificence one can imagine awaits them. We peeped through the windows and saw them planted in the middle of a warm room with ornaments, with the most splendid things, with gilded apples, with gingerbread, with toys and many hundred lights. And then, asked the fir tree, trembling in every burr, and then, what happens then? We did not see anything more. It was incomparably beautiful. I would fain to know if I am destined for so glorious a career, cried the tree, rejoicing. That is still better than to cross the sea. What a longing do I suffer, were Christmas but come. I am now tall, and my branches spread like the others that were carried off last year. Oh, were I but already on the cart, were I in the warm room, with all the splendor and magnificence. Yes, the something better, something still grander, will surely follow, or wherefore should they thus ornament me? Something better, something still grander, must follow, but what? Oh, how long, how I long, how I suffer, I do not know myself what is the matter with me. Rejoice in our presence, said the air, and the sunlight, rejoice in thy own fresh youth. But the tree did not rejoice at all. He grew and grew, and was green on both winter and summer. People saw him and said, What a fine tree! And towards Christmas he was one of the first that was cut down. The axe struck deep into the very pith, and the tree fell to the earth with a sigh. He felt a pang. It was like a swoon. He could not think of happiness, for he was sorrowful at being separated from his home, from the place where he had sprung up. He well knew that he should never see his dear old comrades, the little bushes and flowers around him, any more, perhaps not even the birds. The departure was not at all agreeable. The tree only came to himself when he was unloaded in a courtyard with the other trees and heard a man say, That one is splendid. We don't want the others. Then two servants came in rich, lively livery and carried the fir tree in a large 
and splendid drawing room. Portraits were hanging on the walls, and near the white porcelain stove stood two large Chinese vases with lions on the cover. There too were large easy chairs, silken sofas, large tables full of picture books and full of toys worth hundreds and hundreds of crowns. At least the children said so, and the fir tree was struck upright in a cast that was filled with sand, but no more. But no one could see that it was a cast, for a green cloth was hung around it, and it stood on a large, gaily-colored carpet. Oh, how the tree quivered! What was to happen? The servants was well as the young ladies decorated it. On one branch there hung little nets cut out of colored paper, and each net was filled with sugar plums, and among the other browts gilded apples and walnuts were suspended, looking as though they had grown there, and a little blue and white tapers were placed along the leaves. Dolls that looked for all the world like men, the tree had never beheld such before, were seen among the foliage, and at the very top a large star of gold tinsel was fixed. It was really splendid, beyond description splendid. This evening, said they all, how will it shine this evening? Oh, thought the tree, if the evening were but to come, if the tapers were but lighted, and then I wonder what will happen. Perhaps the other trees from the forest will come to look at me. Perhaps the sparrow will beat against the window panes. I wonder if I shall take root here, and the winter and summer stand covered in ornaments. He knew very much about the matter, but he was so impatient that for the sheer longing he got a pain in his back, and with the trees is the same thing as a headache with us. The candles were now lighted, and what a brightness, what splendor. The tree trembled so in every brow that one of the tapers set fire to the foliage, and it brazed up splendidly. Help, help, cried the young ladies, and they quickly put out the fire. Now the tree did not even dare tremble. What a state he was in. He was so uneasy, lest he should lose something of his splendor, that he was quite bewildered amid the glare of brightness, when suddenly both folding doors opened, and a troop of children rushed in as if they would upset the tree. The old persons followed quietly, and the little ones stood quite still. But it was only for a moment. Then they shouted, so that the whole place re-echoed with their rejoicing. They danced around the tree, and one present after another was pulled off. What are they about, thought the tree? What is to happen now? And the lights burned down to the very branches, and as they burned down, they were put out one after another, and then the children had permission to plunder the tree, so they fell upon it with such violence that all of its branches cracked. If it had not been fixed firmly into the cast, it would have certainly tumbled down. The children danced about with their beautiful playthings. No one looked at the tree except the old nurse who peeped between the branches, but it was only to see if there was a fig or an apple left that had been forgotten. A story, a story, cried the children, drawing a little fat man toward the tree. He settled himself under it and said, Now we are in the shade, and the tree can listen too. But I shall tell only one story, now which you will have, that about Ivy Avery, or about Clumpy Dumpy, who tumbled downstairs, 
and yet after all came to the throne and married the princess. Ivy Ivy cried some, Clumpity Dumpty cried the others. There was such a brawling and screaming. The fir tree alone was silent, and he thought to himself, Am I not to brawl with these rest? Am I to do nothing whatsoever? For he was one of the company, and had won what he had to do, and had done what he had to do. And the man told about Clumpty Dumpty that tumbled down, who, notwithstanding, came to the throne, and at last married the princess, and the children clapped their hands and aride, cried out, Oh, go on, go on, do go on. They wanted to hear about Ivy Divy too, but the little man only told them about Clumpty Dumpty. The fir trees stood quite still and absorbed in thought. The birds in the wood had never related the likes of this. Clumpty Dumpty fell down the stairs, and yet he married the princess. Yes, yes, that is the way of the world, thought the fir tree, and believed it all, because the man who told the story was so good at was so good looking. Well, well, who knows? Perhaps I may fall downstairs too and get a princess as a wife. And he looked forward to forward with joy to the morrow, when he hoped to be decked out again with lights, playthings, fruits, and tinsel. I won't tremble tomorrow, thought the fir tree. I will enjoy the full of all my splendor. Tomorrow I shall hear again the story of Clumpty Dumpty, and perhaps that story of Ivy Avery too. And the whole night the tree stood still and in deep thought. In the morning the servants and the housemaid came in. Now then the splendor will begin again, though the fir tree thought the fir. But they dragged him out of the room and up the stairs into the loft, and here in the dark corner where no daylight would could enter they left him what is the meaning of this thought the tree what am i to do here what shall i hear now i wonder and he leaned against the wall and lost lost in revere time enough had he too for his reflections for days and nights passed on and nobody came up and when at last somebody did it was only to put some great trunks in the corner out of the way there he stood the tree quite hidden it seemed as if he had been entirely forgotten. "'Tis now winter out of doors,' thought the tree. "'The earth is hard and covered with snow. "'Men cannot plant me now, "'and therefore I have been put up here under shelter "'till the springtime comes. "'How thoughtful that is! "'How kind man is, after all! "'If it were not so dark here and so terribly lonely, "'not even a hare, and out in the woods it is so pleasant, "'when the snow was on the ground and the hare leaped by.' Yes, even when he jumped over me, but I did not like it then. It really, it is really terribly lonely here. Squeak, squeak, said the little mouse at the same moment, peeping out of his hole, and then another little one came, and they snuffed about the fir tree and rustled among the branches. It's dreadfully cold, said the mouse, but for that it would be delightful here, old fir, wouldn't it? I am by no means old, said the fir tree. There are many, there are many, a one considerably older than I am. Where do you come from? asked the mice. And what do you do? They were so extremely curious. Tell us about the most beautiful spot on the earth. Have you ever been there? Were you ever in the larder where the cheese lies or on the shelves and the ham hung over above? Where one dances about the 
tallow candles that place where one enters lean and comes out fat again, portly? I know no such place, said the tree, but I know a wood where the sun shines and where the little birds sing. And then he told all about his youth, and the little mice had never heard the like before. And they listened and said, Well, to be sure, how much you have seen, how happy you must have been. I, said the fir tree, thinking over what he had himself related. Yes, in reality those were happy times. And then he told about Christmas Eve, when he was decked out with cakes and candles. Oh, said the little mice, how fortunate you were to be an old fir tree. I am by no means old, said he. I came from the woods this winter. I am in my prime, and I am only rather short for my age. What delightful stories you know, said the mice. And then the next day they came with four other little mice, who were to hear what the tree recounted. And the more he related, the more plainly he remembered all himself, and it appeared as if those times had really been happy times, but they may still come, they still may come. Humpty Dumpty fell down the stairs, and yet he got a princess, and he thought at that moment of the nice little birch tree growing out in the woods, to the fir that would be a real charming princess. Who is Clumpty Dumpty? asked the mice. So then the fir tree told the whole fairy tale, for he could remember every single word of it, and the little mice jumped for joy up to the very top of the tree. Next night two more mice came, and on Sunday two rats, even, but they said the stories were not interesting, which vexed the little mice, and they too now began to think them not so amusing either. Do you know only one story? asked the rats. Only that one, answered the tree. I heard it on my happiest evening, but I do not then know how happy I was. It was a very stupid story. Don't you know one about bacon and tallow candles? Can you tell any larder stories? No, said the tree. Then goodbye, said the rats, and they went home. At last the little mice stayed away also, and the tree sighed. After all, it was a very pleasant. The sleek little mice sat around me, listening to what I told them. Now that too is over, but I will take good care to enjoy myself when I am brought out again. But when was that to be? Why, one morning there came a quantity of people and set to work in the loft. The trunks were removed, and the tree was pulled out and thrown rather hard, it is true, down on the floor. But a man drew himself toward the stairs where the daylight shone. Now a merry life will begin again, thought the tree, he felt the fresh air with the sunbeam, and now he was out in the courtyard. All passed so quickly. There was so much going around him that the tree quite forgot to look to himself. The court adjoined a garden, and all was in a flower. The roses hung so fresh and odorous over the balsarod, and the linden windows in blossom. The swallows flew by and said, Corvit, my husband is... My husband is come, but it was not the fir tree that they meant. Now they, now then, I shall really enjoy life, said he, exultantly, and spread out his branches. But alas, they were all withered and yellow. It was in a corner that he lay among the weeds and nettles. The gold star of tinsel was still on the top, and the tree glittered in the sunshine. In the courtyard, some of the merry children were playing who had danced at Christmas, 
round the fir tree and were so glad at the sight of him. One of the youngest ran and tore off the golden star. Only look what it still on this ugly old Christmas tree, he said, trampling on the branches so they all cracked beneath his feet. And the tree beheld all the beauty of the f flowers and the freshness in the garden and beheld himself and wished he had remained in his dark corner in the loft. He thought of his first youth in the wood, of the merry Christmas Eve, and of the little mice who had listened with so much pleasure to the story of Humpty Dumpty. "'Tis overpast," said the poor tree. "'I had but rejoiced when I had reason to. "'But now tis past, tis past.' "'And the gardener boy chopped the tree into small pieces. "'There were a whole heaps lying there. "'The wood flamed up splendidly under the large brewing copper, "'and it sighed so deeply. "'Each sight, each sight was like a shot. "'The boys played about in the court, "'and the youngest wore the gold star on his breast which the tree had on the happiest evening of his life however that was over now the tree gone and the story had an end all was over every tale must end at last well that is it for this episode of the quotations life to tape podcast this was the junior classics volume one i want to thank everyone for coming out i will be recording this uh, next week Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.